right, let's uh, pick up now talking about Hasmonean in Jerusalem. Or Hasmonean. Hasmonean or Hasmonean, either way. Jerusalem. All right, where did we, where did we leave off? The, the Greeks had come in and basically Hellenized the Jews. Or attempted to, they, they changed everything about them. Their religion, they changed their, um, their economy, they changed the way they write, the way they think, the way they, the way they, the way they even the Bible became Greek, called the Septuagint. Okay? And if you're a conservative or if you're a, a religious, what we would call today some kind of religious fundamentalist, or you're willing to die for your religion type thing, um, these guys, conservative, we'll use a nicer word, conservative Jews were militant. They said, enough of this, we will, we will stop this, or we will die trying. Okay? It's called the Maccabean Revolt. It's in yellow, so write it down. Make sure you get it. And it's named after his famous leader, Judas Maccabeus. Judas Maccabee. And his name means the hammer. Now, I'm going to date myself here, which is never good. It's, it's especially not good if you're saying I'm going to date myself a little bit. I used to watch big time wrestling. You guys ever watch this? Yeah. Right? There used to be a guy named Grim the Hammer Valentine. No, nobody. You know, you have The Rock, right? He's even out of it now, okay? I'm going to cut this out of the video. This <laughs> <laughs> is this guy who was just obnoxious called Grim the Hammer Valentine. And when I first learned about Judah Maccabee, I was like, oh, like Grim Valentine. He must have been a tough guy. You know? Chunky with long blonde hair. Uh, no, Judas Maccabee was the leader of this rebellion. He became the kind of leader. His name was the Hammer. So then I changed my analogy from Greg the Hammer Valentine to MC Hammer, but then that doesn't work at all. Um, so you have to just go with kind of the idea. His name was the Hammer. He just would hit people. He would, he would hit them, and he, he fought a certain way. We would call it guerrilla style tactics. Okay. Um, the, the Seleucid army was well-trained, well-equipped, and so what he had to do was hide behind trees and hide in caves. So one of the, one of the tactics they used, there's lots of uh, limestone, there's lots of uh, springs, and lots of underground tunnels and things. They would hide in these things, and when the Seleucid army would march by, they'd pop up, stab, 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 and go back down in the caves. Right? And they're very lightly equipped. So these Seleucid soldiers would start coming down with all their armor on, they get stuck in the cave, and then they'd stab them on the ground. So they do this kind of stuff. They, they do kind of guerrilla tactics. Um, they also attacked renegade Jews. They attacked sympathizers. Now, I mean, you can you can draw uh, an analogy to modern Iraq today, right? The, uh, the Americans and, and other coalition forces went in there in an attempt to liberate and get rid of Saddam, and now they're trying to keep the peace until the Iraqi government can. That's that's the line, right? That's that's the story. We're there until the Iraqis can take care of themselves they can defend themselves. But many Iraqis see the US soldiers and other Western soldiers there as invaders or occupiers. So they're fighting against that. So then what you've got is a situation of Iraqis fighting Iraqis, those who support the US versus those who don't support the US. So what you've got in the Maccabean Revolt is these guys are not only fighting the Seleucid, the Greeks, but they're also fighting other Jews who support the Greeks. So it's a very conservative, militant, religious movement. Okay. Now, I would argue it's not only religious, it's also economic. There's no such thing as purely religion. Right? A lot of people use religion to make it, you know, they want to be in control of themselves again. They don't want the great overlords. Okay. The revolt was amazingly successful. 
by about 165, 164 BC. Remember, we're counting down. So 165, 164. The Jews gained control of Jerusalem and the temple from the Seleucids. They resumed, they purified the temple and resumed the sacrificial system. They commemorated this, what many people thought to be miraculous victory over the Seleucids with a new, um, uh, new holiday called Hanukkah. Hanukkah. They even have a Hanukkah song that Adam Sandler sings. It's mm-hmm. traditional. It goes back about 2000. Period. No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. And of course, you know the story. They, they went into lighting it. Instead of raising a flag, you light the menorah, right? You light the candle at the, at the temple. And they all had enough oil for one day, but it miraculously lasted eight days. And so they commemorated this. And you, and you do this with an eighth, not a seventh, not, not, a, not a menorah, but you do it with an eighth candle. Candle Hanukkah, candle thing. Um, uh, because of the eight days. Eight crazy nights of Hanukkah. And then, uh, what was what was the whole point of it? Jewish self-rule. So after all of that, uh, uh, all of the occupation and all of the control by the Babylonians and the Persians and the Greeks, they finally established Jewish self-rule in Jerusalem again. They keep it for about a hundred years, and it was the last time the Jews would rule their own area until the modern state of Israel. So this is it. This is the last time that the Jews will be in charge of their own their own country, if you will. Uh, for it'll last for a hundred years, and it doesn't happen again until modern times. Um, the Maccabean revolt led to the Hasmonean dynasty. Got that? <coughs> the Hasmonean dynasty. These guys are real. I'm not making this up. These these folks are real. Uh, they minted coins. Now, these are very Jewish coins. How do we know that? This is John Hercanus. Let me introduce to you John, John Hercanus, right? and Alexander Janaeus. They had Jewish names as well, but notice we know them by their, by their more Greekified names. Tell them. <coughs> now, what do we know about this coin over here? I'll just, I'll just point out this is, this is kind of uh, Semitic writing here. So you have writing, Hebrew writing. What are these things? Or yeah, about kind of the form of plenty, right? Cornucopias. What do we have in the center? What's the what's the fruit? What's the fruit? What's the fruit? Official fruit of Israel? The symbol. Pomegranate. Why? What's the myth? How many laws are there in the Torah? Like is it six thirteen? Yeah. Six one three. Six hundred thirteen laws in the Torah. And pomegranates have a lot of seeds. And the myth is that every pomegranate has six hundred thirteen seeds, one for each law of the Torah. The other one is that the truth is, pomegranate is the, is the ultimate symbol of fertility. Right? It's got seeds in it. Right? And anything that's got a lot of seed is very fertile. So the pomegranate was kind of adopted as, plus it tastes good and it's pretty and they make good juice out of it. They make tequila out of it today. It's not told. Um, and um, they put that on the coin. What do you notice that's not on, on, on the Hasmonean coins? Faces. Graven images. No faces. No animals, no people. Right, which is in keeping with the Jewish tradition. Here you have an anchor, right? Here you have a shield or some kind of eight-spoke thing with, with uh, Jewish writing. Yeah. Okay. Why did the pomegranate not include the Because it's it, it's not because it's not an animal. For some reason, 
living, right, right, you know, people say, well, I don't want to eat living things, so I'm a vegetarian. No. You're eating veggies. You have to, you have to kill a vegetable in order to eat it. Anyways. Um, <laughs> I, I, I took biology, I took botany. Plants are living things, right? Anyways, another class. Um, it, it, was, it was just a. Not a very good image. Fruits and, and letters. Inanimate objects. No animals, no humans. Um, maybe, maybe print this one out. I just want to talk about them just for a second. So Judah Maccabee becomes the leader. Okay? He leads the revolt, the Maccabean revolt. And then after he's gone, uh, Jonathan, his brother, takes over. Jonathan Maccabee. Um, and then after, uh, after Jonathan is done being leader, uh, Simon takes over. These were all brothers. So these were Jonathan, these were Judah, and these brothers. So kind of, it was family run, so they called it the Haslamian dynasty. They were said to be descendants of Haslam, Hashlam. Yeah? Which is a no-no. So I'm guessing it's, they weren't they weren't on the proper line. 
After John Hercules, pardon me, after Aristobulus was Alexander Janaeus, or Janai, um, and he had inherited the throne from his brother, so his brother was king. This is his brother. He only lasted about a year. Aristobulus did. Um, what did happen to? No, he got he got really sick. He died of an illness. He he he, he was. Um, he had, he had fought, he, I think he had served as high priest. Let me check. Do we know this? Aristobulus was originally to receive the high priesthood, um, but he didn't want this, so he cast his mother into prison and allowed her to starve, right? And then took over, and then, of course, people will say, well, this is divine retribution, because after he lets his mother starve, he, he himself gets a grave illness and dies a year later. So it's called karma, call it whatever you want, but the guy only lasts a year uh, because he wanted to be king and not just high priest. Janaeus, his brother, takes over and really reigns for a long time. Um, uh, we talk about Salome Alexandra, but here I put a star by her, and yes, it's a her. She was married to Alexander, right? And upon Alexander's death, um, she becomes the queen. She becomes the, the only female ruler uh, of Israel up until what? Golda Meir. Modern, modern Israel Prime Minister. So they actually had a woman, a woman uh, queen, uh, a leader back in the day. Um, she was the wife of Aristobulus, and then later Alexander Janaeus. So uh, historians think that there was a leveret marriage. We don't have time to talk about leveret marriage, but in Jewish tradition, if you marry someone and your husband died, if you're a woman, you marry someone, your husband dies without giving you a child. The next of kin for that man was supposed to impregnate or marry outright that wife, and then that son would be considered the son of the dead, the dead husband. It's called leveret, Levi, leveret marriage. Okay, so we think that's what happened there. So she was married to both of these guys. Okay. Um, and one other important thing that's, uh, that's that you need to know is that she switched allegiances from the Sadducees to the Pharisees. We haven't talked much about them. These are two Jewish religious groups and political groups. The Sadducees were closely tied to the temple. They were kind of elite, very wealthy. They didn't believe in an afterlife. They didn't believe in angels and demons and heaven and hell and all this stuff. They liked uh, the way things were. Right there at the temple. The Pharisees were kind of the lower or middle class. They weren't as much centered on the temple, but there were a lot more. They were kind of the populist party. And upon dying, Janaeus told Salome Alexander, told his wife, make friends with the Pharisees. Because that's the political future, make friends with the Pharisees. So she switches allegiances, and after winning their approval, she's allowed to reign for a while. Um, and then we'll come back and talk about Hyrcanus and Aristobulus in a second. And what I want to set up is this idea that as the lineage goes on, these Pharisees and these Sadducees become the kingmakers, right? So if you're a Democrat, you still kind of, even, even President Obama, right? Even he, right before this big oil rig spill, had, you know, had made concessions. Okay, well, I guess it's okay to drill offshore. Remember that? And now this thing blew up, and now it's like, why did I say that? Right? You have to make some concessions politically to win enough votes to, to get the support that you need in a democracy and in your king. Otherwise, people would rebel against you. Um, 
So she did this. Now, by the way, when she's gone, as soon as she's gone and her commerce takes over, he switches back. So you can see that the kings will support the different Jewish sectarian groups uh, depending on what they're going to do for him, how much they're going to support him or her. So it's, you know, our political system today is, is not really different from what they had back then. Even if you were king, you still needed the support of the people to be an effective king. All right, let's move on. Hasmonean dynasty, as I said, were named after they were said to be the descendants of Hasman or Hashman. And they rebuilt on the lines of the first kings. It was important to the Hasmonean kings to try to, to the extent that it was possible, um, reenact or, or portray themselves as the appropriate descendants of the Davidic monarchy. They wanted to reestablish this golden age. So they did a lot of the things that David and Solomon were said to have done. Um, so they really pushed the borders. In fact, they pushed the borders beyond the traditional border. But the traditional border was kind of the Jordan River, but they were pushing it farther to the south, they were pushing it farther to the east, they went more to the north. And anytime you're pushing the borders, that means you're conquering people. So that means these guys were military commanders, they greatly expanded the territory, and as I said earlier, uh, Hasmonean rule lasted about 100 years. Questions? Questions? I'll pause for just a second once you guys are ready. Yeah? It's, uh, they have like two big areas Well, the Seleucid, remember, the Ptolemies were, were about from, from 300 to 200. The Ptolemies ruling out of Egypt were the big ones. And the Seleucids beat them down. So the Seleucids took control, the Ptolemies kind of fade away. Um, so Seleucids are there, and then the Seleucids are the ones that really Hellenized Jews, and then they have the Hasmonean revolt and throw up Greek or, or Seleucid uh, domination. And now the Jews are setting up for a hundred years their own their own mark. And let me just skip ahead here and say that what's the how's the line go? Absolute power corrupts. Absolutely, right? The Hasmonean kings, as soon as they become kings, begin doing the very things that the Greek leaders were doing to them. It always happens. As soon as you take power, you criticize the incumbent. As soon as you take power, you begin doing these very absolutely powerful things that the incumbent did, that you argued against. That's why politicians lie, right? I will not raise your taxes. I will not raise your taxes. Your taxes won't go up. Read my lips. And as soon as you get in power, well, it would be nice if we raise taxes. Right? Or other things. Okay. Um, I think I've shown you this chart before, but let me just show it to you one more time. Before the exile, you got about 40,000 people in Jerusalem. Uh, Persian period, after they come back, not much. Not very small. And now, by the time you get to 150 BCE, this is the beginning of the Hasmonean period, you're back up to 35,000 people. Jerusalem is the rocket center of this Jewish empire. This is the place to be. Everybody's coming in. Now, it's very Greek looking because of the Hellenization, but it's the rock and it's the cool place to be. They were already Hellenized, and so now they're going to become increasingly corrupt. Right? One of the things that they did, now remember what, what caused the, the rebellion, was meddling with the religion, meddling with the high priesthood. 
That's what really set the Maccabee revolt over the top. Now, you can argue it was an economic rebellion or it was a social rebellion. They used religion as an excuse, but for however you argue it, that was the, that was the thing that really put them over the top. And now you've got the, the Hasmonean kings, right, who aren't really qualified to be king, but call themselves king anyway, are now saying, you know what, we're also going to serve as high priest. And this is a no-no in ancient Israel, in, in, in Judaism. You always had two anointed offices, the king and the priest. Separate, kind of a, you know, an early separation of powers. You had two different things. And now these guys are saying, you know what, we're just going to be both. Because the king, the Davidic line is gone, and we're kind of the kings in control now, even though we call ourselves, well, they started calling themselves kings as well, later. But we were the Nasi, right? We were the leaders. And because the priesthood has become and, and, and taken on so much administrative or secular leadership, we don't want any rivals. We want a singular monarch, a one, one dictator, one dictatorial power. So they combined the two offices, and these Hasmonean kings began to refer to themselves as priest kings. They were both kings and high priests and qualified to do neither. In fact, you get some great stories of um, one of the Hasmonean kings coming out to try to do, I think it was Sukkot, or one of the one of the festivals, and he was butchering it. He didn't know the liturgy. He didn't know what, he, what you were supposed to do and all the different prayers and all the different fruits that you put out. So the people are sitting there holding their fruits to this festival, and the guy's fruiting it up, right? So um, uh, they just started pelting him with the citrons. It's like throwing eggs or tomatoes uh, at the king. So the priest king is out there, and he's butchering the, the, the rite, the sacred rite. So they start throwing things at him, so he has a bunch of them executed. And that's what you do when you're a tyrant, right? You don't, you don't criticize the tyrant. Um, uh, they were very insensitive to, to, to Jewish, especially conservative Jewish traditions. They executed political and religious opponents, anybody who dared criticize them, they executed. As we said, there was brutal, brutal territorial expansion, and they were for nationalistic reasons, not for religious reasons. Uh, they employed mercenaries, which was a no-no, that is, you hire soldiers that were foreign to come do your dirty work for you. You know, we're, we, we, nah, I don't want uh, basically, let's say there's a law that says you can't do something. I won't say what, but let's just say we have a law that says we don't, we are the U.S. and we don't do this. So what we do is we hire some other people to come do this for us. That's what they did as well. They, they hired these mercenaries to come and do the jury work for them. And they forcibly Judaized everyone in the kingdom. Now keep in mind, but not, not too long earlier, the Greeks had done what? They had banned circumcision. So they had got a generation or two of Jews who were not circumcised. So now these Hasmonean kings are going to be darn sure that you follow Jewish law. So they went around house to house and forcibly circumcised all males. Yeah, ouch. You can, they can't, the camera can't see it, but you guys are all going, the guys are, the girls like what? The guys are like, ouch. Forcibly Judaized, right? Superficially make people Jewish. Keep that in mind, by the way, because we're going to see one of the leaders that's going to come to the throne in Jerusalem was one of these forcibly Judaized folks. Okay. 
So they were insensitive to Jewish religious traditions, but they were also Jewish. But they were going to, but they were going to enforce the superficially Jewish stuff. So you weren't supposed to hire mercenaries, but they were hiring mercenaries, right? You weren't supposed to enslave your own people. You weren't supposed to execute your, you know, you're supposed to take care of the, the resident aliens and the people. But they're executing folks. But we're still Jewish, and we'll prove it. So they had to go to force be circumcised. In fact, 
this claim of both king and high priest is probably what caused some of the factions, the Jewish factions. They basically said, look, if you're going to adulterate the, the high priesthood, we're out of here. And we'll go make some other temple. Or we'll go, we'll, we can't have anything to do with a corrupt high priesthood. You don't qualify. And so many scholars think that that's what's behind the sect that's responsible for the Dead Sea Scrolls. Because they're talking about how they hate the wicked priests. They hate whoever it is as the high priest in Jerusalem. And yet they love the temple. They love the temple, they love the Torah, they love all this, but they hate the person in the high priest, and uh, who's the high priest. Which explains, basically, if you think you've got a corrupt high priest, you would do that. You would still love the temple, but hate the high priest. Questions? Questions? Yeah, the, the, let's just say that the book of Hebrews was very creative when I came up with this explanation. And this isn't a religion class, so we're not gonna, we're not gonna go into that. It's a great topic. If you want to read it, you can come to my office and I'll give you what I think happened. Let's do one more slide here. We saw there was a resurgence in Jerusalem size. It became a major urban center. It became a center for religious life in the Jewish community. The Hasmoneans were absolutely obsessed with trying to make themselves legitimate as rulers because they were questioned as kings to make themselves uh, legitimate as priests because they weren't Levites from the tribe of Levi. They were claiming to be both, and that's a no-no, right? So what did they do? What was their excuse? The book of Maccabees re records this, okay? Maccabees 4. The Jews and their priests have resolved that Simon should be their leader and high priest forever until a trustworthy prophet should arise. So that what the Maccabees, or what the Hasmoneans, the Maccabees did was they said, Okay, I know I don't qualify to be king, and I know I don't qualify to be priest, and I certainly don't qualify to be both, but I'm just going to temporarily hold on to this power until a trustworthy prophet comes. And once that person comes, then we'll turn, we'll just happily turn the power back over to them. But until that, we'll just be the, we'll be the kind of a temporary power just for a while, right? And you guys have seen the, the Star Wars prequels, right? Anytime you give somebody just temporary power, they tend to want to hang on to. So that's what's going on. Any questions? We have to stop. I do have a few more slides, but we have to stop. We'll pick up Hasmonean on Tuesday, and then do Herodian, and then we're off uh, to more modern periods.